Well, whereas ransomware, somebody gets hit, that's headlines the next day, especially if it's high profile. Like, Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Security Superpowers. My name is Steve Ramey, and I'll be your host through this theater of cyber masterpieces. Returning to our show today is Mark Bleicher, Erite's Managing Director of Digital Forensics and Incident Response. Mark, thanks for coming back. What's been keeping you busy since we last spoke? Uh, uh, thanks for having me, Steve. Uh, a lot of things can keep me busy. Um, probably most recently, the uh, Kaseya uh, VSA vulnerability, which I know we'll get into later in the discussion. And then uh, really everything else has been the headlines kind of keeping us all busy. So staying busy this summer. Yeah, no no downtime since we last spoke, I guess, right? No, but you know that just means business as usual. So I guess things are normal, right? Yeah. Well, after this episode, let's re-ask that question and see what our answer will be. So, Mark, since we since we spoke, um, you know, we had we had discussed the uh, the state of cybersecurity, uh, which was was basically on the tails of our publication of trends we saw in 2020, as well as uh, what we expected for 2021. And then after we spoke, I met with several industry leaders to discuss a range of topics covering the incident response investigative lifecycle. You know, those topics included cyber insurance, incident response management, threat intelligence, forensic investigations, data mining, and uh, data privacy. Specifically on, on cyber insurance, uh, I spoke with Mark Sheen at, at Marsh, who had a very interesting perspective that there's looming change within the, the insurance industry, um, where there's several disruptors that are affecting the insurance. Um, you know, his perspective really focused on you know, some of the startups that are occurring in the space and some of the pivots uh, the major insurers are, are taking uh, to try to get ahead of, you know, some of these attacks, you know, closing the low-hanging fruit, so to speak, common entry points uh, and attack vectors. Uh, but, you know, some of these other disruptors that we've seen, even as of recent, uh, not only are these startups, uh, but also, uh, you know, government influence, you know, I see the White House is taking much more of a, a focus, a perspective on on these attacks that are affecting American businesses, uh, as well as specific regulations uh, and even, you know, rumblings of potential outright banning crypto payments. So I guess, Mark, what's your what's your experience with how technology is being used by these insurance companies uh, to help with with uh, underwriting those premiums? Yeah, I mean, specifically, I'd say want well, to start our own direct experience, the data that we collect for our platform for the carriers, 180 data points around everything from the OFAC process to IOCs we collect from the client environment to the type of environment it was. You know, that all ties back in or eventually makes its way through the insurance channel back up in one way or the other. And that's, you know, being leveraged ultimately across different platforms to make informed decisions to assess the risk in the environment. I know what I just said was sounded like a, a bunch of buzzwords. So basically what they're doing is using what we're seeing on their front lines to make better assessments of risk in the policies that they're underwriting. Different startups, as you mentioned, are kind of taking this into their whole operational model, both from a proactive standpoint. So before they underwrite a policy, they do a full assessment on the environment. And not only, they don't just set it and forget it. And then, you know, talk in a year when it's renewal, but continuously assess that environment, make sure that things are being updated, patched, things that come out like Kaseya or solar winds, those are addressed, you know, getting ahead of it, making sure that the low hanging fruits, as you mentioned, you know, 
RDP, uh, MFA, those type of things are addressed. So they're using technology and data that's getting back to them to address those things up front in a more proactive standpoint. So they're not, you know, finding themselves in a situation six months down the road with several ransomware claims or, you know, fraud. So you're saying that uh, the data we aggregate the insurance companies actually leverage as part of the the underwriting for their premium? Uh, I think at some standpoint, I can't speak specifically uh, what development phase our platform is at, but ideally that is, um, you know, one of the intended purposes of it. So I know right now our data I can speak specifically to informs, as you know, the claim side during, uh, you know, say a ransomware engagement, particularly if we have to engage a threat actor, you know, what's our experience with that threat actor before, what can we expect? You know, that data we collect in those cards, um, you know, that's one way that we're providing that back right now to the carriers. And of course that's, you know, available in our, um, as far as the underwriting side, I think that's the next iteration, but again, it's probably also another episode in itself just to talk about what we're doing in that space. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it makes total sense. You know, the, all, all the information that, that our teams see as we aggregate it, you know, you can really see these trends pick up irrespective to the size of the organization. It really focuses around the the configuration of the network as well as threat actor that's exploited that, that configuration. And so I think those two data points alone um, are, are huge, um, are huge help to any decision maker, whether you're at the insurance company, you're on a legal team, uh, the organization for, for picking and making decisions with the their MSPs or their in-house IT and even our incident responders, you know, we, we commonly refer to uh, refer to it as a threat intelligence, but really it's it's a deeper level because we're using this information to make actual business decisions. Yeah, I think it's very specific tailored business intelligence in our case that we're providing back. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in, in addition to to Mark, um, I also spoke with uh, Greg Batista from from Mullen Coglin, literally for hours about data privacy and its challenges. Depending on you know where that that privacy is or what type of information it is and in, in the geographic proximity, you know you're facing you know maybe one or you know hundreds of, of different regulations. Um, you know what are some of the trends you've seen um, t- that organizations have started to simplify you know the data privacy requirements either before an event occurs or after an event occurs? Yeah, good question. So I guess I can speak. Most recently, uh, to a client I had, and this was a, a learning moment for me as well. Um, you know, we were kind of putting together a strategy for recovery of a fairly large environment and what it would look like to completely rebuild everything in a cloud um, environment. And in doing that, it forced them, ironically, during the incident to do a full kind of data discovery where everything was, albeit it wasn't, you know, a deep discovery of what they had and it kind of did a high level classification. So that forced them into, you know, kind of understanding what they had at a high level. But at the same time, they also learned, as did I, that, uh, you know, the ease of which the cloud could provide um, a lot of the, I guess, management and configuration and to some degree the automation for data privacy that the kind of the struggles that they had so once they classified it um, you know putting that in the cloud that would have freed up a lot of their resources and pain points moving forward so i think you'll see the future um that organizations you know in that decision 
pace with that. We're going to see more more cloud, in my opinion. So, and I guess maybe that's another uh, episode. Oh, the cloud is a, a magnificent place to be. Uh, Richard Branson actually took off today. Uh, fully transparent. Today's the day that, that Richard Branson went to uh, almost space. Yeah. Apparently, he only went 80 kilometers above uh, the Earth, uh, above sea level. And in order for them, for him to have actually went to outer space, he needed to be 100 kilometers above sea level. Yeah, fun tidbit. That was this big article. Uh, the only reason why I know this is a big article uh, from INC.com, specifically focused on the the tiff between Bezos and, and Branson. Uh, so apparently when Bezos launched uh, his campaign for him to go to space on in, uh, Blue Origin, his company, uh, Branson jumped in and announced you know a date earlier than than uh, Bezos's date. Uh, so it's it's funny to see the the two going at it, but uh, neither here nor there. Sci-fi, you know, kind of concepts here with our cybersecurity. Those big billionaires still have their same type of uh, billionaires as well. Yeah, yeah, right. But yeah, so so all right. So Mark, you know, the cloud. This, this thing is huge, right? I, I still think we, as an IT world, are very early on in the use of the cloud, especially with how close quantum computing. Um, is becoming for actual use in businesses and possibly even, um, you know, our, our home products. Um, you know, what is, you know, kind of what is something that a business could could do with the cloud today? Is is it as simple as, um, you know, our server is down, our physical server that's stored in our office is down. Could they just take their applications and put them in the cloud and then recover their business that way? Uh, well, I mean... Is yes and no, but it's really situation dependent. Um, again, the, the client I just mentioned with the cloud environment, you know, one of the things, the like Active Directory, for example, there's a lot of things you kind of need to have templates in advance for, which fortunately they did. So in those situations, you can recover when you have a template, um, especially, you know, if it's a virtual environment and, you know, you can check me on that. I'm, I'm sure there's people on, out there cloud will check me but anyway i guess the, the short answer is yes and no um as far they also had a large you know application environment uh thing is is majority of their code was in-house and they said that they that's something they couldn't recover that their developers would have to just you know be able to remember years and years of code so they could you know restart their development environment in the cloud but as far as recreating it again if they didn't have a backup or a template for the code repository i you know they're kind of at a loss there so then it's it's for for this specific situation it's much more than just kind of you know your software you have to know where your data is too um and so you're creating kind of a, a software or an application map and then you're creating a data map because you need to know what data is consumed by the applications and where it's what lives in your organization and then what data actually needs to make it to the cloud for that recovery, right? Exactly. And then essentially, and again, I don't want to get too deep in this because I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people out there like, no, you were so wrong. It's not. So, uh, right. Once you have that basic baseline or template down, it is essentially as easy as that, especially if you're a seasoned uh, you know, system administrator. Once you have that baseline, you know, managing the cloud is, you know, the way forward for them. And that's, you know, what we recommend, again, if they're facing a situation to recover or even um, rebuild entirely, it's, uh, that's, you know, what we're kind of recommending. Haters going to hate, Mark. Shake it off. Just shake it <laughs> off. 
No, absolutely. I mean, it, the, the power of, of the cloud, it really, you know, it, it, it exists. And, you know, there's, I, I still think there's a level of uh, uh, skepticism to, to move to the cloud, uh, especially after an organization, um, you know, goes through a devastating ransomware attack or some type of extortion or unauthorized act, activity there. But I really do think that the, the cloud itself, um, from a proactive standpoint, whether it's post-incident or planning for an incident and migrating to the cloud, you have a greater sense of security, you have a um, quicker response, you have more control over redundancy and backup that the organizations really need to look into. And quite frankly, I've seen it with several, you know, some of these older uh, MSPs that aren't as um, involved in you know, virtual technology. Um, they just lack knowledge. And so they're not advising their clients properly by not leveraging these, these cloud. It's simple things too, by the way. It's you know not having an exchange uh, on-prem. You move to actually exchange online. Let Microsoft handle the infrastructure, pay that subscription. It might be a little bit more, but you have redundancy up there. You, someone else is responsible for that uptime. And no matter what happens to your data on-prem, you'll have email. So you'll always be able to contact your customers and communicate with them without having set up a uh, disposable Gmail account uh, while your exchange server, you know, is down for however long that might take to recover. Bring up a good point that I want to pull on. Um, you know, as far as the, you know, having on-prem exchange and then syncing that with the cloud. Not only that, but Microsoft has done a phenomenal job with the security integrations that you can get for your entire office application suite from Active Directory to email, particularly around phishing, as you've seen from doing thousands of BEC investigations. So just the security alone in the cloud and what's what's out there, I think the more people are educated to that, you're also going to see an uptick. And again, like I said, this is an area that I'm slowly starting to get into and I'm learning a ton. And uh, I, from what we've seen over the last two years, it's you know, going to be exciting and a, a new frontier, I think, for everybody, both responders, um, clients, everyone in the ecosystem. Yeah, it certainly is. Um, you know, we, we did kind of touch on a uh, a software assessment. We we touched on a little bit of, of a sorry, a software map, a, a little bit on a data map. You know, I guess what's your what's your take on you know uh, an overall security assessment of a, a cyber program or an information security program? You know, what would you say the benefits would be? What's your position? Is it something that's worthwhile that every organization should go through at least once, if not multiple times? You know, what are, just, what are your thoughts and, and how, how, what are the benefits of, of an assessment? Sure. Um, yeah. So I guess, you know, from having worked at different types of organizations from, you know, small to large consulting same with you. You've been to uh, with a lot of the big fours. I've seen all the different type of risk assessments that are offered and done and ultimately delivered, and then the results of those assessments. So my personal opinion, and this is based off of recent work that we've done, is seeing kind of get a get past a lot of the fluff that I think a lot of organizations get sold. Particularly, and actually, let me caveat that: unless you have you know reporting obligations for you know you know socks right if exactly so if you are required if you have any reporting obligations and you have a, a standard that you have to be then you know risk assessments are required especially if it's you know pci um but if you are an organization you know let's say a small organization or even a medium-sized organization that 
has a solid information technology program and a good baseline security is a I think a a risk assessment to identify your weak spots absolutely but anything further than that that's just a paper assessment that's going to tell you well this is what we found wrong and this is what you could do and here's what we recommend I honestly think that's a waste of time and based on recent work that we've done I think really working with a client understanding the root of their core problems and saying here's what we can do that's tactical and strategical and here's a plan just to get it done rather than going through all the the checklist paper bs that's the route and that's my opinion i know again that's probably not a popular opinion but i've seen the results on both ends yeah i I can echo echo that i mean uh there's a big difference being handed a heat map that's pretty you know pretty print formatted uh with with red green yellow um highlights uh, versus handing the information security director or the CISO, you know, that well, findings, you know, that very high level summary dashboard of findings, and then another, you know, three or 400 pages of for each item, this is how you go and fix it. These are the steps. Let's build a project plan. Now that we have a project plan, let's prioritize each one of these projects and make sure that if there's any dependencies, those dependencies are met before we start the project. So there, there is, you're absolutely right. There is a big difference between having that, you know, 50,000 foot view versus having the actual granular view of not only did we find some stuff that are pretty low hanging fruit, we can start right now, but then we found a bunch of other things. Here's an action plan to go about fixing those items. Um, and if you need staff log, you need experts, you know, we can provide that as well to supplement while we're fixing you know, a lot of these, uh, these gaps. Exactly. Um, and, and to that point, I, I really, I really do think that there's that a lot of the consulting teams don't necessarily want to help. I think that they do want to help, but I think there's an idea of consultants. Longer, sorry, I was going to say there's usually a longer term strategy at play there. Again, that's yeah. my personal opinion. So. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's that stigma that consultants have just in general that, Oh, if we hire you, are you ever going to leave? <laughs> um, and sometimes it's good. Sometimes you build a very strong and close relationship with, with your clients and they want you there and you're actually providing value. And then there's sometimes where your clients don't really leverage your full skill sets or your experience. And so they're only getting you know what they want versus your actual ability to consult and provide those uh, that strategic direction. Exactly. And you know, again, you bring up another good point. In my career, uh, some of the most memorable long-standing relationship and biggest you know client relationships have been ones that been a part of if it's an incident you know helping them respond and recover from that and then afterwards helping transform them um the ones that you've been a part of for that response getting to understand them both on the personal level and you know the technological level and internally their operations on how you can really transform them that the i'd say that really also kind of has really changed my opinion of of risk assessments in general because after that they really look to you for all right what's the next step how do we make sure this doesn't happen again and then that's when you really have an opportunity to go over well you know what have you traditionally done and you look over oh i see you've, you've done this risk assessment with this firm you know for the last 10 years and you know here's the things that you know, they looked at, but here we are now. So that's um, kind of my personal experience with that again. Yeah. I, I, it's funny you bring this up. I actually had this conversation uh, last week. Um, 
and I was talking to a CIO and I said, I said, uh, you know, have you ever considered a VCSO, you know, a virtual chief information security officer? They said, why would we do that? We already have a CISO. I said, well, you know, that CISO is probably limited in knowledge. No, no offense to the CISO, you know, very good at what that person does. I said, uh, but having, you know, a trusted advisor that CISO can talk to at the same intellectual level, understanding what threats are out there, what trends are occurring, um, would just make your program stronger. You know, you're, you're actually bringing in a VCSO to help mentor to shadow. Um, and it, that kind of, you know, I saw the, the the light spinning in that CISO's or the CIO's mind, where it's it's okay. So a VCSO wouldn't necessarily replace a CISO, but would help to maybe complement or supplement specific you know skills that may or may not be there. Maybe the information securities and dis, uh, organizations in disarray, and we can have a VCSO come in, help to strengthen the organization, and offload some of the CISO tasks onto the VC. So until we can, you know, uh, level set and, and straighten out the or- org, or maybe that VC. So comes in and provides a perspective and it's nothing more than in this situation, from my experience, this is what I've done. And the CISO can learn from that. And so really having, you know, uh, a, a, sorry, really a VC. So and a CISO aren't mutually exclusive. They can also be one in the same and really help complement each other. And to your exact point, when you bring in that external team, and you can integrate that external team, you're bringing in that knowledge, that experience, not just with that specific client they're working on, but with all the individual experiences they all accumulate, they bring that to the table and they're consistently consulting on that. Plus anything that new, any of their other clients experience, they can readily bring that over to their their current client and say, hey, this just happened on this, this uh, organization, um, equal size, uh, about about the same staff count, same revenue count, bit different structure, but it's still a concern that we wanted to raise with you. And this is what we've, we're doing to fix and alleviate that problem with them. Um, so, you know, really the idea now is, is uh, from my perspective, is the more knowledge you can bring to the table, the better our clients will be. 100%. And I think, again, it's uh, the other like value area I've seen BCSOs in addition to everything you just went over is you know, if you're a first time CISO or maybe you're going from like a startup situation for a CISO to, you know, a Fortune 50, not everybody can be an expert in all domain areas. I can tell you that if I were a new CISO, one of the questions I'd probably ask is, hey, do I have the opportunity to work with VCSOs experts in domain areas that I may not be an expert in to advise me? So not only would I I, I would say it's it's actually a recommendation, um, you know, for organizations that uh, are able, in a position to be able to to afford it, both you know from a resource standpoint. So, I I think it's um, a huge benefit as we've seen, uh, you know, a lot of post our incidents. Yeah, it certainly is a, a great recommendation for for all of our listeners, uh, no matter how big your company is, pursuing a VC so to either. Uh, you know, outsource to your entire security program or uh, to complement, you know, currently what you have uh, as a security program with a, a CISO or director of security uh, will certainly bring, you know, a different perspective and uh, allow your your program to, to mature a lot quicker. So, Mark, I kind of want to talk a little bit about trends, what we've what we've seen. Um, you know, our last call, uh, we had we had talked about uh, specific trends, you know, 
themes, so to speak, about what these these uh, threat groups are doing, uh, what the government's doing, and then some, you know, uh, very very uh, timely attacks, quote unquote. Um, early on, earlier this year, there was the the White House had formed a uh, part of a uh, you know CISA. They had formed a a ransomware joint tax force. And now since Biden's taken office and started to uh, um, familiarize himself with a lot of the, the cybersecurity um, events that are going on, it seems that the White House is taking a, a stronger stance, both from a, a executive order level as well as, you know, a, a, uh, a foreign relationships uh, perspective. I guess what, what's your prediction, you know? What's your prediction on how the government influence with these regulations, with their position is going to affect, um, you know, the, just the general state of cybersecurity? Do we, we think it's going to be, you know, it's going to force a, a greater enhancement? We think it's more just kind of um, appeasing to the people. What would be your, you know, what's your prediction on, on where this might go? Jeez. Uh, I, <laughs> well, let me pause before I answer because I mean I could again give you what I I think it's a huge step in the right direction um, and I'm, I'm I'm thrilled that our government and this administration has finally decided to get involved but uh, you know actions obviously speak louder than words and I'm sure there's a lot going on in the background I know everybody who makes up the task force you mentioned phenomenal group of people uh, a lot of them are our partners that we work with. Um, so I think, you know, it's the right group of people. It's, I have no doubt that our, you know, we'll do the right thing. It's, you know, what the root of this problem is, you know, if we're talking about ransomware, it's the other side. Will <laughs> that government be willing to come to the table? Um, so as far as what I predict, do I think they will cut out, you know, crypto payments altogether as, you know, the popular, uh, you know, rumor, so to speak. I I don't think so. And, and again, this is personal opinion. I don't think people realize the economic impact that would have. Uh, I can't speak for the entire world. I can speak for the U.S. So, and I know the impact that that would have alone in the world. So it would be a huge impact. Anyway, as you know, if they stop crypto payments, I think what you'd see to start to happen is trickling of SMBs start to fall one by one. And obviously the domino effect, again, that's what I think would happen if they, uh, you know, outlaw crypto payments, either that, or I don't know if they would go to other extremes to try and get paid, but I just think that that would be too knee jerk right away. I, I think what more than likely what will happen is we're already starting to see a lot of it is there's going to be a lot more regulation oversight restrictions on how the entire process is done by all the different parties involved. So I, I think that's more than likely what's going to happen is, so we'll continue on, but things will be a lot different as the, you know, there, there's going to be a lot more eyes on this. So I'll leave it at that. Yeah, certainly. So the, uh, I mean, I think China and India have outright banned cryptocurrencies. You know, just just flat out banned it. You can't be a, a holder of of any type of crypto. Um, both uh, both countries, I believe, are also looking into their own digital currency. Uh, so not that you can't eventually you'll be able to hold something, but it would be that local 
you know, that, that country's currency. I think El Salvador just uh, um, created their own and launched their own digital currency. So these, these, these countries are taking cryptocurrency seriously um, and they're looking at it as a means of what our what are our citizens using it for? And then how can the government best get in to protect the citizens from losing all their money and in, in failed uh, ICOs or, you know, just general fraud based coins? Um, I know that, you know, to your, to your points earlier, you know, we could certainly spend you know multiple episodes on on talking about the currency, uh, cryptocurrencies. Uh, but really, you know, that isn't the answer. You remove cryptocurrency. Um, the threat still exists. And it's really how do you neutralize the threat? Might be a stepping stone, but it may create additional problems uh, from an economic standpoint. Um, you know, who knows what what might happen there? Uh, so it certainly will be interesting to see, you know, what comes out of this task force, what comes out of some of these conversations our government is having with some of the other world governments um, to specifically combat, you know, the, the ransomware proliferation. I think, yeah. And I guess to kind of top off what I said, the, the point to leave you with is, you know, extortion is always going to exist in one form or the other. And how the the criminal side of that extortion ultimately gets paid um, is just going to which can ultimately change. So um, I, interesting times ahead, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very true. I mean, I mean, if you think about even before the, the rise of ransomware, um, you know, credit cards were, were highly sought after. Social security numbers were sought after, and people were experiencing identity theft, having fraudulent charges. Um, so there's not that that hasn't been removed, but I, I think the focus is really the popularity is focused on ransomware, just because of how much easier it is. Um, you have uh, for the use of a social security number, you need some other you know supporting information. And you have to go open that financial account and you have to leverage it. Uh, but individuals have the a quicker ability to freeze their identity to prevent, you know, those types of accounts to be opened. Uh, for credit cards, you know, once that breach occurs and the, the credit card majors can identify it, they can shut those cards off, which pretty much creates, you know, those that block that was stolen, uh, null and void. So they're not as... They're not as, uh, from my perspective, not as widely used uh, because of some of the safeguards that have been put in place. So, um, you know, but if you remove the payments, you know, what information exists, how can th that be monetized? And so really, you know, to your exact point, they'll just find another way around the wall and continue on with the extortion piece of it and, and figure out how to continue their 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 monetization in, in those that uh, extortion empire no I, I man you bring up some good points again <laughs> there's a lot of different directions uh so the, the first one as far as you know what you said payments and stuff so your first point about monetizing you know before you know ransomware so to speak existed ransom payments they monetize stolen data so that was again i guess back to you know, a form of extortion and that facilitation was done kind of not, I want to say in the open, but it was still done on the dark web. So I guess that's one way it's changed in what is ransomware. I guess it's in your face now. Uh, and I did a, a panel talk a few years ago about the evolution of like cybercrime, just having been an IR now for 15 years and how the majority of the stuff you responded to, like in you know 2008, 2010, or at least I did, 
was kind of nation state. Um, the stuff that, you know, Mandiant made their name on the experts in like the APTs. Like it was a lot of that where it wasn't publicly disclosed unless they're, you know, found out, you know, there was personal information that may have been exposed. Um, so it was more done kind of, you weren't aware of it. Well, whereas ransomware, somebody gets hit, that's headlines the next day, especially if it's high profile, like the pipeline or food supply. Um, so that's the other thing that changed. And are, are we still on trends, by the way? Because now I'm like getting more into this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we're, I mean, you're, you're actually bordering that, that next topic we're, we're about to talk about, Mark, is, um, you know, these groups are getting a lot bolder um, into the two that you've just listed. You know, um, you know, and this is off what I, what I tell my clients is that, you know, uh, when your data is stolen and it gets posted to the dark web, uh, there's security researchers that are trolling those sites. Um, and that could be, you know, somebody from, you know, security magazine or, or bleeping computer, or it could be somebody from the wall street journal or CNN. And what we don't know is at what point will your company's name surface in a publication on the, uh, basically on the surface web. Uh, and really it boils down to the profile of, of the organization. And so sometimes we're seeing more and more local news coverage finding local businesses on the dark web. But really, when you get into the the larger companies, the the Fortune Thousand, the you know the S and P, you know those large companies, as soon as their data hits those blogs, those security researchers are all over it, and it spreads like wildfire through the the media outlets. So to, to your point, once those once those um, large companies, whether it's a pipeline or a food a uh, food supplier, because of how big they are, because of their their public profile, um, once their names put on there, CNN, Wall Street Journal, the News Times, the Washington Post, uh, BBC are going to pick those up and just broadcast that to really just slam it into everybody's face. Exactly, and you know, as we've seen too, um, I, I'd say a lot of those, you know, from having worked on high profile ones, at least the initial kind of reports, as you know, are not even close to being accurate too. So that in some way, again, as you know, especially in ransomware, when particularly certain phase of the ransomware engagement, if you're engaged with a threat actor in some way, that, you know, initial reports in the media can also have a negative impact on that. Um, I won't go too far into that. So that's uh, yeah, another thing. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And um, even to the other side of this, you know, when, with how sticky the situation is, um, performing the incident response, trying to manage, you know, the public aspect of the event, you have some insiders that decide to take that information and leak it to the press, and that really adds a, a huge challenge as well. Yeah, yeah, no, it certainly does, especially you know, <laughs> when you're trying to get to an end solution and, you know, they're losing money every day from, you know, operations being down and then you have to deal with that. And then that's added to the mix. I, I don't think majority of people obviously on the other side understand what, what that adds to the fire. <laughs> no, they, uh, well, not that they don't, but being in the middle of that fire, it's 
certainly a hotter seat than than trying to gather information and and write about it. So, I mean, on the, on the topic about being much bolder, you know, one of the, the trends we saw late last year, earlier this year was, you know, harassment themes from these groups. Has has that theme continued? Have, have, have your, you know, incident response matters? Have your teams been reporting, you know, a lot more harassment, whether it's been, you know, calling the victims or, or threatening a DDoS attack? Yeah, you know, it's been, um, has it continued? Yes. Has it become a commonplace? Um, I think so. Uh, you know, what we continue to see, I think, since the last time we spoke is, uh, you know, reaching out by text or calling, uh, or in one particular instance, we saw somebody text or call somebody close to um, one of the matters that we were engaged with. So that was um, pretty eye-opening. And I think the closest that we've ever seen that. And then from there, uh, I have seen an uptick in DDoS uh, attempts or threats. Personally, I think that's, I don't give away the, the solutions to got to get around that. It, it's simple, but I, I think it's more of a nuisance. Um, uh, hopefully that doesn't become common because um, it really just hinders, again, the ultimate end goal that both sides are trying to get to. And that's either to leave you alone or, you know, to come to a solution. So anyways, uh, there has been more and then continued threat of data leakage. And again, I, I think when the high profile stuff gets publicized, there's really no need for the harassment, maybe to the client. I, I think you may see that if you're directly interacting with a threat actor, but they're kind of, you know, at the same time getting the notoriety they probably ultimately want. Um, and that in itself is almost a form of harassment to the, to the victim. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're certainly a lot more complicated now. Um, I know I worked a couple of them where the, the individuals would have to go and actually get new phone numbers. You know, they're getting text messages and phone calls every 15, 30 minutes, you know, just saying, where's our money? So it's, uh, it's not fun. As a, a certain twist, that's, well, in my opinion, way too personal. Uh, but, you know, there really are no boundaries with uh, with these thieves and and the extortion that happens. It, and I will say this, I, I know it, it's different being on the victim side of it, but it really is just a scare tactic at the end of the day. Obviously, it's easy to get your contact information from emails, which they clearly have access to since they have access to your network. So it's somebody that's thousands of miles away. And this is what I, you know, counsel clients through at this time if they're like, you know, this is a really scary situation. It's just a scare tactic. So I guess that, you know, maybe for the next season, what the trends that we're going to observe if these tactics haven't, you know, worked to the effect that they thought they were going to, you know, it'll be interesting to see what we see. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. It's a slippery slope at this point. So hopefully the, uh, the governments can get together and figure this out because the uh, individual citizens are pretty much bearing the uh the brunt of of the uh, these attacks um i do want to go back to a topic that we had, we had all right mark i want to want to go back to you know a comment made earlier or a topic made earlier about uh the Casavia vsa i guess what uh what can you share with us about about the attack um you know moving forward though the other thing that i want to talk about that i was mentioning earlier is a lot of people said, oh, the big focus is now they're going after MSPs, and that's really not the case um, at all. 
In fact, our evil, we've seen at least for the last two years that MSPs have kind of been a, a big target for them. They've had a lot of success where they hit the MSP and then in turn get access to five, six plus customers, depending on the size of the MSP, you know, it could be more. Um, so I think what the difference is between um, the Kaseya and what has kind of been our evil's normal MO for the last, you know, two years where they've increased operations is that now they've gotten in the supply chain and leverage their success that they've had with MSPs. So that's really just taken their, their whole model to another level. And that's that's what I want to say about Kaseya. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with everything you just said there, Mark. Um, the idea that this is a supply chain attack is is the differentiator. That's what not a lot of the, uh, at least the articles I've read, really, really picking up on. Um, MSPs are our target as much as individual businesses are. Um, but really what we saw with the solar winds attack, what we, what we're seeing with some of these other APT style attacks are other points of entry. How do they bypass the security controls that are put in place in high, basically hide in plain sight. And so using a trusted tool and leveraging some type of weakness or vulnerability to, uh, to gain access and deploy the ransomware is, is really the hardest thing to find but the simplest way to go about their business exactly well cool so um mark you know we're nearing uh the end of the uh, the topics here but we probably have you know four or five follow-on talks we can we can uh have um all through you know the topics we're seeing and diving in a little further into so definitely going to hold uh hold you up on on your end of the offer there to to continue the, the chat on some of these uh subtopics uh, but really, any any parting words for our, our listeners? No, I appreciate it, Steve. Uh, as always, I had a great time. I could talk uh, all day about everything we went over. So this is a blast. Would uh, love to come back next season and talk about everything I, I went over in more detail. And hopefully a lot of uh, what I started to go into doesn't come to fruition. But I, I definitely, as you know, again, things are going to evolve get interesting so definitely a lot of interesting things in the horizon and uh looking forward to coming back yeah perfect likewise happy to uh have you back anytime you like um sure do appreciate your time i appreciate uh, all the listeners out there listening to uh us talk through the the uh, state of cybersecurity a whole uh three-ish months later uh, since the launch of our first episode so uh thank you thank you all and we look forward to uh returning relatively soon uh,